0: Um, but if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Matthew. We're in uh, Matthew 5. Uh, we've been taken off a couple of weeks from the Sermon on the Mount because we had a couple of different things that we did with camp night and with uh, Halloween party, uh, God and science, things like that. But now we're back in the Sermon on the Mount tonight, and so we're looking forward to that. Um, but while you're turning there, I just want to do two things really quickly. Number one, I want to ask you to pray uh, for uh, Drew Tunnell, um, one of our interns, uh, one of his best friends uh, dad passed away suddenly from a heart attack today, and so he was going to be with us tonight, but he actually um, is heading to um, Gardendale here soon, um, but just a really tragic thing. So pray for the, um, the Everhart family, if you will, tonight, because um, it was a church staff member at his home church, uh, Sunday school teacher of his, and just a really heartbreaking thing. So pray for that family, if you will, tonight, uh, and for him. Uh, but just want to let you know what that's going on so we can lift him up. Um, But besides that, we're in Matthew 5 tonight. Uh, We're going to be in in verses 31 through 37. Um, So, But as um, we're looking at that, I kind of want to update you really quickly, kind of catch you up on where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. uh, In case you've been out of it for a while, we all have been out of it for a while, but um, even if you missed a couple. Just so you know, the big idea of the Sermon on the Mount is this, right, is that Jesus is teaching us about the identity of of a follower of Jesus, right? Remember talking about some of these things and really the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5-7 through where Jesus is describing to us what it means to be a follower of Christ, uh, who they are and how they live and what they do. And really in this, like we talked about before, we've talked about how this is really Jesus telling us what the good life is. Like what does it mean to live the good life, a life of fruitfulness, a life of flourishing, we use that word a lot. Uh, And really what does it mean to be a good person? Like really what does it mean to be a good person? And we find all of that in relationship with God and this idea of the kingdom of God that we're brought into. And so a lot of this kind of stuff even is kind of circling around the kingdom. Uh, but at this point in the sermon, Jesus is kind of talking about what it really means to be righteous. And that's a good church, or, church word we use a lot to talk about what does it mean to be right with God? like What does it mean to be a good person? And we've talked about how the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, uh, had this kind of external idea of what it meant to be righteous, that to be approved by God, he simply had to live by a, a list of do's and don'ts, like checkboxes that you could check off, okay, well, I, I didn't do that, I didn't do that, I went to the temple to pray today, and, and I'm, I'm good, me and God have to be good, but Jesus comes in, and as he brings in the kingdom of God, as he begins to teach, no, no listen, like, I'm God, I'm really teaching what it means to be right with me because I'm Jesus, you know, like, he's saying, no, listen, that external set of, of rules and do's and don'ts is completely not the idea, you've missed it. It's not about just the external obedience. It's about your internal obedience. It's about your heart obedience. And he, he begins to give examples of this. And, and we saw weeks ago, really like a month ago now, we saw the examples of anger and lust and how you know, we can you know, obey the Ten Commandments by not killing anybody. But yet if we, uh, if we harbor bitterness and anger in our hearts, we're disobeying what it really means uh, to be reconciled and be a lover of all people. And so we can harbor anger and bitterness. And really, as Jesus says, really, when you do that, you've you've murdered a brother in your heart. You didn't really kill them outright, but you're harboring this in your heart. And then lust, the same idea that as we harbor lustful thoughts in our minds that really we may not go out and be sleeping around, but Jesus is saying that you've committed adultery in your heart in this way. So there's this internal, external thing kind of going on that Jesus is saying, it's no, my people, people that are right with me are obedient from the heart. And that's kind of the idea we've seen so far and so today we're going to look at more application of that. Really two specific ones, we're going to kind of boil them down to this, is that Jesus is also now going to look at how following him applies to our commitments and how the external and the internal implies our commitments. And so we're going to be in uh, verses 31 through 37 looking at two specific things. We're looking at um, divorce and we're looking at oaths, okay, divorce and oaths. So if you want to read with me, we're going to read Matthew 5, 31 through 32, And then we'll pick up on 33 through 37 in a minute. Okay. So let's read 31. I'm in ESV says this. It says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right, so let's talk about this for a minute. So first off, I wanna say this. Uh, my goal tonight is not to do like a completely exhaustive teaching uh, about divorce and to answer all the questions about that because um, honestly, we could be here for a long time and talk about that kind of thing. And honestly, I think really that's better done one-on-one in many ways. And so my goal is not to answer all the questions, but I know this is that there's not a person in here that hasn't been affected by divorce in some way. Maybe you, maybe your parents are divorced, maybe you have family members, friends, Uh, but we've all been affected by this in some way. Uh, My parents are still together. Um, They're not just still together, they're doing great, Uh, but they're together. And, um, but I have divorced family members and I have uh, lots of uh, friends who have divorced parents or or extended family. And I know the heartache that divorce brings when you see a marriage fail. And I, I understand that. So my goal tonight is not to deal with all these questions, but let you know, we're gonna look at what Jesus teaches about divorce, what it matters for us. But if you have any questions, Uh, If you have concerns, if you just need someone to talk to about this kind of stuff, I would love to talk to you about this. I would love to sit down and we can walk through more specific stuff and hard questions you may have. So just because I don't answer everything tonight about divorce from a biblical perspective doesn't mean that it's not important, but please come talk to me. Um, I would love to help you out and talk to you in that kind of way. So that's kind of my, that's my precursor to this tonight, okay? So, but with that, we want to look at um, actually another verse or another chapter in the book of Matthew to help us with this, and so because Jesus in Matthew five kind of gives like a tweetable version of his teaching on divorce, but if we go to Matthew nineteen, which I gave you in our outline, we're going to see Jesus kind of unpack this a little bit more. Which is a word that us preachers love. We love that word "unpack." I think I say it way too much, but um, we're in Matthew nineteen. We're going to see Jesus kind of give a further explanation about what it means um, to kind of follow his teaching on divorce. Okay, so let's look at this. And what's happening here is this: is that the Pharisees in another situation are going to challenge Jesus on his teaching. They're, they're going to try to kind of catch him in a, in a tight spot of answering a question, but he's going to respond in a profound way that I think gives us a lot of insight on divorce and marriage and what Christ taught about that, all right? So let's look at Matthew 19, verses three through nine, and we'll go from there. So it says this. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to Moses, because of your hardness of heart, notice that, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. All right, so let's think about this for a minute. What is Christ saying? Well, first off, know this, is that in that time, the the Pharisees were teaching that if you were a man, as long as you found some kind of indecency with your wife, and as long as you gave her a certificate of divorce, they knew you we were following the law, and it was okay. And it was allowable for you to get a divorce. And we'll talk about that more in a second. But the question is, what kind of indecency are we even talking about? First off, if you do some research, um, you find this. So there's a rabbi, uh, his name was Hillel, and he taught a lot about the different like, things that you can you know, use as permissible to divorce your wife. And there's lots of them, but even things as small as her like being a bad cook and like burning your food was apparently acceptable in the Pharisees' eyes for a reason to divorce your wife. And, and yeah, you, I'm getting a lot of, like, disgusted looks from people. You should be disgusted by that, right? it, It's terrible, okay? It's bad, right? You know? Um, of course, my wife was an amazing cook, so I don't have to worry about that ever, right? But but that was even some of the silly things that they would allow as a way that, okay, well, she's a terrible cook. Here, take the certificate of divorce, and sorry, you know? And that was kind of their thing, um, But what Jesus says here is this, is that that was never the intent of marriage whatsoever at all. So what we're gonna do is this. We're gonna boil down this kind of idea of what's going on here in three different sentences, okay? I gave you three sentences on here about how Jesus responds to this question and what we can get from his teaching about divorce and marriage, all right? So number one is this. The Pharisees focused on reasons to get divorced or get divorced. I think I left off a D, but get divorced. Jesus focused on honoring marriage. And if you notice this, Christ does this all the time. I love this. He like, they ask him a question. He doesn't even respond to the question. He just like launches in like to a different thing. I love that. How Jesus says that. He's like, I don't want to deal with your ridiculousness of your questions. I'm going to tell you what's real. He doesn't respond to the question, but instead he, he goes straight to God's intent on marriage, right? He says this, that, that God's design for marriage doesn't come from Moses, right? And Moses wasn't giving a teaching on marriage and what they're quoting, but it comes from God himself. Because if you look at the way Christ responds, he says, God declared from the beginning of creation that marriage should be a lifelong commitment between two people. And that's because in marriage, God is not just, you know, it's not some kind of ceremony that's just happening. But in marriage, God takes two people and creates one flesh. He takes two people and makes one unit. And so when you marry someone, on Sunday mornings, we talk about Hebrews a lot, about covenant. we mention mentioned the word covenant all the time in Hebrews, the idea of a promise, a vow. Well, when you marry someone, you're entering into a covenant relationship with them. And when you, and you're committing your life to that person. And really we talk about like, you know, we we do wedding ceremonies. I've done a couple of those. I've had the blessing of marrying a few people um, the past year or two. And in that ceremony, we talk about, you know, before God and these witnesses. Well, the reason we say that is because when you're covenanting yourself to this person, you're also saying, listen, I stand before God. And I stand before these people here saying that I'm going to commit my life to you. This is a covenant, it's a promise that I make to you. It's not just a ceremony we're having, not just a, a certificate I'm signing. This is a much more significant thing that I'm committing my life to. And so it's not just about looking for reasons, it's about the, it's about the commitment in the marriage. That's the first one. The second one is this. The Pharisees called divorce a command, if you notice, but Jesus said it was allowed only because the hardness of human hearts, okay? Because if you notice in this conversation, Jesus said, uh, the Pharisees responded to Jesus saying this. Well, why did Moses command us then to uh, give a certificate of divorce and send our wives away? Well, if you look at this, what they're kind of referencing is Deuteronomy 24. So if you want to flip, you can. It's a little bit farther away from Matthew. But if you want to flip, you can look up Deuteronomy 24, one through four. But I want to read it for you so you know what they're referencing, all right? So in Deuteronomy 24, one through four, they're referencing this command or this passage from Moses. It says this. who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife, after she has been defiled. For that it is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Alright, so was that confusing? Yes. Okay, that, that's kind of the point. It's a really confusing passage because here's the deal: Moses is talking about like a very specific kind of situation, like circumstance. He's basically saying that if if, if a man marries a woman and they get divorced, and then she goes on and remarries somebody else and then that guy dies or they get divorced and she wants to come back to her original husband. No, you can't do that. That's kind of the idea of what's happening. That's what the description is. Um, and really the reason that Moses gave that warning is probably really more about a warning against men for making a quick decision to divorce their wife and really to probably to protect women from being exploited. Okay, but here's the point is that you notice there's tons of ifs and ands and all kinds of like caveats on that. The point is this, is that Moses is giving instructions in a specific situation. He's saying, all right, if you're going to do this and if this is going to happen, then this is how you should do it. All right. This is not Moses giving a command at all. Right. This is Moses making an allowance. It's it's a concession that's been allowed. And that's what Jesus is saying is that, no, that that was a concession because of your own sin, because of your hardness of heart, that if this is even going to happen, this is the way to do it. But he's saying that's not the point of marriage. That's not the, your intent in marriage at all. It should be to look for a way out, right? But instead, it's a completely different thing we'll talk about it in a second, right? That's not God's design. So look at point three. The Pharisees took divorce lightly. We saw that with the, the cooking and things like that, right? But Jesus took it so seriously that aside from one exception, he called it adultery. Because if you look at his last sentence there in that passage, which he also says in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus concludes by saying this that whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. And so, in that, he's kind of assuming, he's implying this, is that if that couple gets divorced, then the woman's going to go off and marry somebody else. That's why he says that he makes her commit adultery, all right? And that's because in that time, it's a very different time for the role of women in society, and many of them didn't work and they didn't provide for themselves in a similar way that they do today. Today, so many women, if they got divorced, most women, if they got divorced, kind of had to go and marry another another man just to kind of provide for themselves and and uh, and survive. I'm not saying that's right at all, but that's kind of the situation that was happening at the time. And so, if they got divorced, in many ways, the husband that divorced them was driving them out to go to another man. And in that, Jesus says that the man's making them commit adultery. So that's kind of what he's talking about here. All right. Um, But with that, let's talk about even that idea of sexual immorality. What is he talking about there? Well, that word is porneia, which is where we get the word like pornography and things like that, or pornographic. Uh, But that Greek word really means, it's very blanket. It's a really big kind of catch-all term for like any kind of sexual unfaithfulness uh, to uh, your husband or wife, any kind of sexual unfaithfulness in any kind of way. And the reason that Christ even brings that idea up is this, is that if we talk about marriage becoming, uh, being two people becoming one flesh, That in sexual immorality, what you're doing is you're trying to attempt to break the bond of the one flesh union that has happened in marriage, which is why Jesus highlights the, the kind of messed up nature of that. Because in marriage, two people become one flesh. So if you go and be sexually unfaithful with someone, you're trying to break the bond that God has brought together. And that's why sexual sin is so dangerous. And we talked a lot about that with the lust talk. I won't get into all that again, but that's why the idea of sexual sin and unfaithfulness is such a big deal because it's more than just a physical thing. It's a spiritual, emotional, all kinds of things deal. All right. But if you notice, Jesus also says that's only an exception that he gives. In no way is he making this a command. And this is what we want to kind of focus in on for the next few minutes before we move on, is that if we read this passage and we think that we can use it as ammunition, to kind of give people or even give ourselves in the future a reason to get out of a hard marriage. We're just looking for ammunition. We're looking for excuses. We're missing the point because that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were looking for reasons. They were looking for excuses to bail on their wives. But instead, Christ calls them to faithfulness and commitment in marriage because of what marriage is, all right? But even if you think about it in context of the Sermon on the Mount, what do we look at in the Beatitudes? We saw that Jesus said that blessed are the peacemakers, right? and Colby's talked a lot about recently, you know, we're called to be ministers of reconciliation. And if those kind of things are true in our lives, then our focus in marriage should not be on looking for a way out, but it should be on honoring, loving, and serving the person that God has brought us and, and, and brought us together with. So if, you, if, you're, if you're with us for fall Retreat, remember we talked about the book of Hosea. We had Hosea and Gomer, and Hosea was married to Gomer, and she was unfaithful to him, and ran away, and there's all kinds of different things. And that word for sexual unfaithfulness is used to describe Gomer in the book of Hosea as well. It's in Hebrew, but it's the same word equivalently. Um, but in that, we even see in that story, like we heard at Fall Retreat, how God called Hosea to pursue after Gomer, even in her unfaithfulness, as a display of God's love for his people. And then we look at the book of Ephesians. And Paul calls um, marriage in the book of Ephesians a picture of Christ in the church. And if you've gone to many weddings, you've probably heard this. But marriage is a picture of Christ in the church and that as a husband lays down his life for his wife, he images and and reflects how Christ has laid down his life for the church. And as the church, and just as the church loves and respects and honors Christ, the wife loves, serves, and honors her husband. But it's this picture of two people that are laying down their lives for each other honoring each other, serving each other. You know? It's a beautiful thing, and me and Haley are learning so much about that right now because we just got married, and it's awesome. We highly approve marriage. All right? um, but, it's, I mean, but it takes work, and it takes you laying down your life for each other, and it takes commitment, and it takes faithfulness. And that's what Christ is pointing us to. And so that what, he, what Jesus is saying is this, is that when marriage gets hard, the question we don't ask is this. is not, okay, what, what reasons can I find to get out of this? This has become way more hard than I thought it was. What can we do to go back to the place we were? earlier in our marriage when things were were better, you know, or what can we do to lay down our lives for each other, to honor God in our marriage and honor the person that he's brought you together with? How can we honor marriage and and lay down our lives to serve and love this person in the same way that Christ has served and loved me? All right, so the question is not we're looking for reasons to get out, but we're looking for reasons to invest and lay down our lives and build up this person, you know, and, you know, put in the hard work of building a strong marriage, Okay. And I understand there's like so many scenarios that we could think about. You know, what what about like abuse? What about abandonment? You know, um, what about all the the thousands of scenarios that we could talk about when it comes to divorce? And we're not really going to get into that tonight because, like I said, it's better one-on-one, I think, uh, because there's so many different scenarios to talk about. Um, But with this, I'll say this. Just because Christ doesn't mention that kind of stuff, just because he says things the way he does, doesn't mean he doesn't care. Because if you look at the whole narrative of Scripture We know it's so far from the truth that Christ doesn't care about our suffering, but he is so near to those that are oppressed, that are hurting, that are suffering, that God loves those that are abused, uh, that are hurting, that feel abandoned. And so Christ isn't saying in this passage, okay, well, if you're stuck in a hard marriage or being abused, you've been abandoned, whatever like that, like, you know, just tough it out because divorce is wrong. It's not what he's saying. He's, He's not saying that at all. He's allowing that sometimes divorce may have to happen. Even though it's an ugly thing, even though it's not God's intent, that sometimes it has to happen. And just because we're called to honor marriage doesn't mean that we leave ourselves and remain in a uh, difficult and dangerous situation. Like if you're in an abusive situation, you need to get out of there. You need to maybe have some separation that takes place. You need to go get help from people. You need to, you know, call your friends, get out of that situation. He's not calling us to stay in um, in dangerous and abusive situations. It's because we want to honor marriage. We need to get help. But those kind of issues are worked out best through counsel, uh, through prayer, through bringing other people alongside you, uh, through pastoral counseling, all that kind of stuff, and not staying isolated on your own. And so, um, but the focus that Christ places is not on looking for ways out, but honoring and respecting marriage and really, really learning to love and serve the person that God has brought you together with, okay? Because in that, we learn so much, and I could do a whole talk on, you know, and we have before, on some of the things that we learn when we commit and lay down our lives for people, that we learn so much about our selfishness and God forms our hearts more to the image of Christ. Um, and we learn so much in that. But that's kind of the idea of mirrors that we're shaped in that way. So that's kind of all the stuff we're gonna talk about with divorce tonight. Now we're gonna move on to the second half. So let's look at verses 33 to 37, because Christ is gonna kind of carry the same like, idea here, because he's still talking about commitment, but he's gonna to switch to a different kind of that it was said to those of old. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it it is his footstool. Excuse me. Banana pudding is getting me. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. And get this. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil or the evil one. Okay? Okay. So in this, Christ, Jesus kind of turns the page a little bit and is still on the idea of commitments, he moves on to talking about commitments not in marriage, but the commitments that we make in our promises, in our words to each other. And so we looked at, look at this here. The past couple of illustrations Jesus has used have been like kind of direct pulls from the Ten Commandments, like don't kill, you know, don't commit adultery, um, things like that. But this one is really not so much a direct pull from the, the Ten Commandments, but more of a kind of conglomeration of a couple of different ones, okay? So let me give you a couple of examples. I gave you some on your, uh, your note sheet. But Exodus 27, 27, uh, Leviticus nineteen twelve, in Numbers 32. Let me, they're all short. Let me read them for you real quick. You've heard Exodus 27 probably. It says this, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. All right, we've heard that one. Leviticus nineteen twelve. This one sounds a lot uh, similar to the one that Jesus is quoting. But ye shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. And then number 32, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Okay, so what do these verses mean and what is Christ kind of getting at in this? Well, the reason I included the Exodus 20 verse is because a lot of times we get the whole idea of God's, uh, not taking God's name in vain, kind of twisted because we hear that and we think, okay, I shouldn't say, you know, like certain phrases and I shouldn't, you know, speak um, irreverently, when using God's name, which is is true. We should honor God's name and we should respect his name in our speech. That's very much true. But the best interpretation, I think, of that verse of Exodus 27 is, it's not we're talking about using God's name disrespectfully, it's this, is that when we say we take God's name on. Um, A great picture is like marriage. I'm all about marriage tonight. So like Haley, she became Haley Bryant. Sorry, I'm Haley. Haley, I'm sorry to call you out like 17 times. Okay, but um, it's a great point. So she's Haley Bryant now. She took on my name when she got married to me. So she took on my name. And so when she said, okay, I'm gonna become your wife. I'm gonna become Haley Bryant. I'm gonna gonna live. The church is the bride of as your wife now, right? Well, think about the picture between Christ and the church. If the church is the bride of Christ, we become a Christian. We, in many ways, take on the name of Christ we become his bride, we become his people. And so to say we take on his name, if you wanna talk about the 10 Commandments as wedding vows, which they can be laid out that way, when we take on God's name and we take his name, it's not just saying it, but it's say, we take it on saying I'm his people, I'm one of his people, that I am God's, I am Christ. So to take his name in vain then is to say, yeah, I belong to the Lord, but then live in a way that is completely contradictory to the way a, a, a Christian will live. And I think that fits a lot better into the context of Ten Commandments and really what it means to like take the Lord's name in vain. And because then you you can apply that to a lot of things which really works here because when we use God's name even in a manipulative way to say that we're gonna make a promise and and keep it and then we break it, we're living in a way that goes contrary to who God says we're supposed to be in Christ, that we, we live contrary to his name. And those other two verses make it more clear. If you look at Leviticus 19 and Numbers 30, it makes it more clear that even... So as we use God's name, in, uh, not in vain, but as we use God's name in general, that if we're going to use his name as an authority to fulfill a promise, then we better do it. Right? that's the whole idea of those verses. If you're going to say, you know, well, I swear to God that I will do that. Well, first off, you better do it. All right. But really, the big idea here is that Jesus is saying we don't even need that. We don't even need that kind of oath. Because apparently, if you do some research on it, the Pharisees, had kind of taken this idea of like taking on the name of the Lord in vain, and just like they did with the divorce stuff, they kind of made this crazy system. And we see that in how Jesus is talking about this kind of stuff because they said this. All right, so those verses in like in Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers, they're not really saying don't like swear falsely. They're not saying okay, don't promise something and, and break it. They're saying okay, if you're gonna like make a promise and break it, just don't use God's name in the promise, and you'll be okay. Like, if you say, okay, I swear to the Lord I'll do that, you got to do it. But if you say, okay, I swear to, or I swear on the temple, then you can maybe get away with it, you know. Or I swear on the gold of the temple, okay, you're less, like, called to hold that promise. And it sounds really weird that we would say, they would say that, and that seems so foreign to us. But that's what they were doing, and that's why Christ mentions this stuff like, you know, heaven, earth, the temple, and things like that. If you will, for a second, turn to Matthew 23, if you will, and I want you to see Jesus kind of unpack this a little bit more. And he kind of gives a more further explanation of what he's talking about. So in Matthew 23, 16 through 22, Jesus says this. I'll give you a second to get there. This is very similar to what he said in Matthew 5. But he says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has been Sorry, the gold that has made the, temp, the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. And so, with that right there, we see is what Christ is really saying in Matthew 5. He's saying this whole word system about, you know, well, if I use these phrases, then that's okay. If I use these phrases, I have to actually do my commitment. He's saying that the whole thing is ridiculous. He's saying if you use heaven as, as an authority for your, for your oath, well, heaven is God's. If you use earth as an authority, well, earth is his footstool. If you want to talk about Jerusalem, it's his city. Even talk about swearing by your own head, like I promise on the own hair of my head. Well, that's God. It's God made your hair. God made you. God, God makes your hair turn uh, black and gray. I found a gray hair in my beard yesterday. I freaked out, okay? So like, um, but if God makes those things happen as well, okay? Um, and so when you invoke God in these vows, this whole word system is ridiculous because the point is that you're supposed, you're supposed to be a, peep, a person who keeps your promises. And this whole idea of de- deception and lies that they had um, created it was really just the Pharisees dragging the name of God through the mud as they use their religious language as a way to get out of commitments. And they use their religious language as a way to kind of, you know, wiggle their way out of different things and, and be dishonest in things. And that's why Christ says here at the end of that passage or, uh, of Matthew 5, he says, you know, don't take an oath at all, but let your yes be yes, as some translations say, let your yes be yes and your no be no, anything else is evil. Jesus is saying this, the idea is not an external system of like, what, what can I say to get away with certain things? But the idea is this, internally, that Christ wants Christians to be the kind of people who are devoted to the truth. He wants Christians to be the kind of people who are so trustworthy and so faithful to their promises that they don't need to come up with extra word systems or use more heavy language to make people believe that they're actually gonna follow through with something. But that they're the kind of people that are so trustworthy and faithful that people just take them on their word, that they believe them. Okay, Christ isn't saying that we, we should never take an oath for any reason. Uh, the Anabaptists and the modern day Quakers uh, they don't go, they won't uh, put their hand on a Bible in court because they believe well Jesus said don't take an oath, so I can't I can't swear on the Bible for court. But that, that's not really what the point Christ is making because he's not saying that if if an external authority asks you to swear an oath to not do it, he's saying no. Internally, you should be the kind of person who lives out truth to where no one has to, you know, uh, that you don't have to convince people that you're telling the truth. They just believe you. So if an external authority asks you, okay, because we look at the Bible, I can give you two examples of, of God himself making an oath. Uh, God swears to Abraham in Genesis 22 that he will bless him and make him a great nation. God takes an oath. And then in court, uh, when Jesus stands before the, uh, the high priest, the high priest makes him testify under oath, is he the son of God? And Jesus is like, Yeah. I'll testify under oath. I'm, I'm the son of God, and I'm gonna, you know, you're gonna destroy this temple, raise it in three days, and I'm gonna go to the right hand of God. Like, he kind of, you know, drops the mic and walks away, but, like, he testifies under oath. So we see that oaths in court are, are allowable, but the point is that we're to be the kind of people that live out truth, that we don't have to come up with extra things to make people conv- um, believe us. Because oaths exist, and, like, you know, swears, like, promises in that kind of way, you know, oaths, they exist because of lies, right? but Jesus is raising the bar to say that we should be the kind of people that are so honest that people take us on our word. And so how does this live out then, honestly? How does it live out practically? And we'll begin begin to kind of close out with that. Um, Well, two things. How do we live this out? Two ways. First off, we have to understand that this is kind of, in many ways, impossible on our own. Just like the other stuff that we've seen with anger and with lust, um, on our own, there's no way that we can live out this commandment. Because if we're honest, our own natural tendency as people is to protect ourselves, right? So is to protect ourselves, to, to make life as easy as possible and to do anything we can to make us look as good as possible. And we'll use you, uh, the tool uh, of lying and even little lies and a little deception, a little, little twisting of the truth as a way to, um, to control situations and to control things to make us look better, even in very small ways. And we've all find ourselves caught up in this, I'm sure, and even in this case, we, we can lie by committing and promising to do something and, and then backing out and not really doing what we've said. And we see that even though that may seem like a very small thing compared to like, you know, murder, <laughs> we stand guilty before God. That even in like the littlest of a white lie that Jesus says that makes us, you know, guilty before him, because this is not the way that people in the kingdom are supposed to live. So we're all lawbreakers, even if we fall into the seemingly small sin of a little white lie. And that's supposed to drive us then to the cross. Like we talked about when we looked at the law, how like Christ leads us to the law to see that we're broken and that we have no way to fulfill it on our own. And then that leads us back to Jesus to find salvation, to find new life, to find forgiveness and righteousness. But then Jesus sends us right back to the law to say, this is the way you're gonna live. And so the law then shows us that we're not good enough, that we're all guilty before God and deserve judgment. And then we have to look to Christ, his perfect life, death and resurrection to find new life, to be made right with him. And if we do that, then we can be led back to living out uh, these commandments. And so that's the second thing that we want to see is that once we've received a new heart in Christ, we can begin to live this stuff out. This is not moralism. This is not us trying to be good enough for God in any kind of way, but this is us living out the new life that God has given us in Christ, living out the new heart that we, ha- that we received in Jesus. And the thing is this, and I gave you this on your, announce- your, uh, announcement, your handout there, is that once we're made new in Jesus, it means that we have become people of the truth because we have received the ultimate truth of Christ, that we've received even the spirit of truth that lives in us. And John fourteen sixteen and 17 says this. This is Jesus talking about um, Christians receiving the Holy Spirit. Christ says this, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so if Christians have received the Holy Spirit, if we believe that when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us, then literally the spirit of truth lives in us, that we as Christians now become people of the truth, not people of dishonesty, not people of manipulation, but people of truth. I love the way that Bonhoeffer says it, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, we need no more oaths to confirm the truth of our utterances, for we live in the perfect truth of God, there is no truth towards Jesus without truth towards man. Untruthfulness destroys fellowship, but truth cuts false fellowship to pieces and establishes genuine brotherhood. We cannot follow Christ unless we live in revealed truth before God and man. He has a great way of saying things, and I, I can't say him that way. But um, the point is this, is that Christians are people who are called to be committed to truth, honesty, and integrity of all of life and in all of life. And one specific application, and we'll wrap up with this, is this, is that I know um, these days, I, I hate to say your generation because that makes me sound like an old man, um, but I know the average college student struggles with, with FOMO, right? With that, that fear of missing out. And that FOMO then plays into your to commitments many times because you guys have like a bazillion choices of things to do in life, even on campus and all kinds of things like that. And for you, I know, and this is really common for lots of people, not just students, but it's really easy for us to commit to something when it sounds good. And when we're like, oh, that's, I'm all about that. that. That's great for me. It sounds great. I'm all about it. But then when something better comes along, it's so easy for us to, because of that fear of missing on, on something better, that we just immediately bail on that past commitment. That we just, whenever something better comes, we're, we're out of the last one and we're going to the new one. But that is the opposite of letting your yes be yes and your no be no. And yes, there's lots of times when you can, you know, respectfully change a commitment. You can maybe fulfill it in a different way. You can you know, postpone things. I'm not saying every time you say yes to something, you have to always do it. Okay? There's different circumstances. But the point of this passage and Christ is saying is that as Christians, people should be able to take us on our word. We should be people of integrity, of honesty, of faithfulness. People that um, other people can trust. And they know that if we say we're going to do something, that we're going to follow through. That we're not going to bail just because something better has come along. And that can play itself out in lots of situations. And one of your questions tonight at your table is kind of how does that play out? I'll let you discuss that at your table. But the point is this, is that we should be people committed to integrity, honesty, faithfulness, and to be true to our promises. Because we receive the spirit of truth, we honor truth in every way in our lives. And so with that, as we close, we see this, is that really what Jesus is doing and the way that our walk with Christ influences our commitments is that we're really committed to two things. We're committed to sacrificial love and we're committed to truth. And we do all of that because Christ has committed himself to us. That if he's laid down his life for us, then we choose to lay down our lives for other people, whether that means that in marriage, we choose to lay down our lives for our spouse, or that even as we honor a commitment that it's hard because maybe something better came along, or even we, you know, we just wanna be faithful to that person, even if it's hard for us, that we choose to lay down our lives to that person by sacrificially loving them even when it's hard. Because in all that, we reflect the way, the truth, and the life that is Jesus Christ himself. And people see that working both in us and both through us. And so with that, I want to pray for us and then we'll take time to discuss at our tables. And so um, we have three questions tonight for you. I want to encourage you to, to discuss those. And one's about kind of marriage and godly examples of marriage and the other two are about truth and commitment. So um, we'll give you guys some time to discuss that. I'll come up in about 10, 15 minutes and uh, we will uh, close out. Okay, well, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for.